I started to have unbearable migraines that kept me bedridden with the windows literally duct taped shut with the curtains. I had seizures and it was just unbearable. I couldn't go to school, I couldn't do anything. Cannabis helps me more than these opioids. I went from being bedridden and canceling appointments to not being bedridden to finishing high school, but it took a lot of self-advocacy and a lot of me proving to doctors and not doctors educating me and offering me the safer choice, which I think is a big error in the system. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Medical knowledge is embryonic. They are still discovering new body parts. Sometimes medicine doesn't break new ground, but has to be dragged into the light. A case in point is cannabis. The therapeutic value of cannabis has been known for millennia, yet modern medicine vilified the medication, pathologized cannabis users, while the legal system criminalized cannabis patients. Now we see the global movement making great headway toward decriminalizing and medicalizing cannabis. And as it is with most changes to the medical system, it did not come from within, but from pressure from outsiders namely patients. In this episode of Medical Error Interviews, I chat with Sarah Calero, whose debilitating migraines were made worse by opioids, but better by cannabis. We unpack Sarah's experience with multiple brain surgeries and a medical system often intentionally ignorant about the medicinal benefits of cannabis, and Sarah's advocacy efforts to bring equity in access for patients that need medical cannabis to treat disease and symptoms. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Just go to Patreon dot com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. 
And if you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Sarah Calero, and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Sarah's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I was born in Buffalo, but I moved to Canada, specifically Guelph, around around four, three and a half, four. And um, that was in 99. I lived in Guelph since then. And then three years ago, I moved here, which is downtown Toronto basically to answer your question my main childhood was in Guelph but I did live in those three locations. Okay and before we uh, started chatting today I took a quick look back at your Twitter feed and your pinned Twitter so I know your health challenges started really early in your life. Yeah um, when I was a baby an infant my mom couldn't get shirts over my head and she always used to joke like oh she has so many brains in there that's why it's so big but the doctor's just like um i think we should measure it i think we should check it out so they measured my head and they're just like this this is a little off a little off normal the normal size so they did some mris cat scans etc ct scans and they found a arachnoid cyst in my head, which was pressing on my brain. So this was at 14 months old. They went in for my first neurosurgery and took it out. Great, fantastic, whatever. 17 months old, it grew back. So the doctor's just like, okay, instead of keeping going and draining, going and draining, we're gonna put a system in to drain the shunt automatically so we don't have to keep going in and that's called a shunt so 17 months old they put a shunt in my head which drains the liquid which is what assisted is just liquid down um and then i just peed out and that was great for a while but when i turned five years old i had two strokes and the specialist think they're related, but there's no way to tell for sure. Um, their best hypothesis is that my shunt might have moved slightly and blocked the blood flow, but they, again, aren't sure. From those two neurosurgeries and the two strokes, I had acquired brain injuries, more acquired brain injuries, and then them co compounded. Then when I was a teenager, I started to have unbearable migraines that kept me bedridden with the windows literally duct taped shut with the curtains. And I had seizures and it was just unbearable. I couldn't go to school, I couldn't do anything. They uh, did scans, did everything, checked, couldn't see anything, couldn't find anything, you're fine. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm not fine. And my parents were begging, I was begging. And then one day I just, apparently passed out. I, I wasn't there. I was unconscious. So my mom rushed me to the hospital and I had emergency neurosurgery to see what was going on. And they found out that my shunt had broke and my cyst was growing again, but the test just couldn't see it. They couldn't tell. So they fixed that. But after 
I still had seizures and I still had migraines. Nothing really changed. So they're just like, okay, to deal with your migraines, we're going to give you some medicine. So they gave me hydromorphone and oxycodone, both of them every four hours. I was 17 years old. This made me so much worse, so much worse. So eventually I weaned myself off of them with cannabis. I proved to my doctor that it is for medical purposes and I got a prescription sorry, for an Sarah. authorization. Sorry, can we back up a wee bit? So how did you discover the cannabis? How did you get, go down the cannabis path? Oh, my, my cannabis path, well, I started smoking recreationally when I was 14 years old. I found that instead of giving me like a high, it gave me pain relief. relief. It gave me comfort. It gave me like relief from anxiety, a relief from the things that were going on in my life. I found that throughout the years. So I stayed with it, stayed with it. But when I asked my doctors, my doctors were like, no way, no how, don't do that. But I'm just like, but it works though. Instead of that, they're just like, here, take some opioids, try them every four hours if that's better. It wasn't. And um, so I took it on my own accord to be like, cannabis helps me more than these opioids. I know that. So I am going to wean myself off of these opioids with the cannabis and I'm going to use cannabis instead because the, op the opioids don't work, but the cannabis for me works. I went from being bedridden and canceling appointments 10 minutes before to actually going to my appointments to not being bedridden to finishing high school. And the doctors were like, wow, this is a real turnaround. You're actually showing up to appointments. You're actually up, you're actually moving. So yes, we know that the cannabis does work. We can see that. So because of that, they, well, my one doctor, he's like, I don't know much about cannabis, but I can see it works for you. So I'm going to prescribe it to you on a monthly basis until you find a doctor that specializes in it. So I found a doctor that specialized in it. And now I have a prescription that a usable amount for me. And it was really great, but it took a lot of self-advocacy and a lot of me proving to doctors and not doctors educating me and offering me the safer choice, which I think is a big error in the system that like they go, no, cannabis, the safer option, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't go down that road. But here, these opioids, take them, take as many as you want and see what happens. Yeah, we're all sort of yeah. experiments uh, to these very uh, powerful psychiatric medications. Yeah, I've felt like a lab rat all my life. Before the opioids and before the emergency neurosurgery, they actually had me on so many medications in that big book of medications, like literally down the list of ones that could help me, but they all just didn't help me, didn't help me, didn't help me. I had emergency neurosurgery. I went through all those medications. I went through opioids. None of that helped. What helped me was medical cannabis, and I owe my life to it. 
So it seems that cannabis really impacted a bunch of different symptoms and systems in your body. What do you think's going on? Why is it helpful? I think cannabis is helpful for me because I know that there is um, an endocannabinoid system in the body. It reaches all ends of the body from the head to the toes. So it reacts to cannabis. It reacts to the chemicals in cannabis, the THC, CBD. Ultimately, though, I think it helps me because... Okay, so of course it helped the migraines. Yeah, I received severe, severe, severe migraines. Um, these migraines uh, made me dizzy, made me nauseous, made me throw up every day. I couldn't stand up. I, I needed pitch darkness. Uh, windows, like cur black curtains, duct tape shut. I was like a vampire in the dark. Yeah, that, that was life for me. That was my normal. And, um, and how, that, how frequently would you be having the migraines and how long would they last? All the time. Oh. All the time. On a daily basis, more than once a day. Um, it was rare that I went a few hours without having a migraine. Oh, that just sounds torturous. It, it was. And we couldn't figure out what it was, even with the, the exploratory neurosurgery. Like they, they found that my shunt was broken, but that didn't help it. It was still happening. So they're just like, okay, we've went in, we've given you all these medicines, they don't work. We're only left with one option, opioids, which is the bad option. There's actually a safer option, but we talked about that earlier. Yeah. So the, the cannabis is helping your migraines. Have you heard of other people who also suffer from migraines if cannabis has helped them? Yeah, it's helped them. I've heard people with migraines and not only migraines, I've heard people with back pain, with arthritis, um, people with COPD, a lot of people I've heard of. And not only people with these like diseases, but people with mental illness too. Like for instance, um, not only for my physical like migraine seizures and stuff, but a few years ago I was discriminated against and I got diagnosed with PTSD and cannabis has really helped me through that. Really, really helped me people through their mental health um, struggles too. PTSD, anxiety, even simple like depression. It just uplifts you and distracts your mind from the bad stuff. And that's what some people in really intense situations with a lot of trauma need. And that's what I needed. Okay, so cannabis helps with the PTSD because it sort of brings down the anxiety you're feeling and it's a distraction from those recurring rumination of thoughts. Yeah, it makes you think about other things, uplifting things, happier things. Um, like if you're just have, having like stuck in a flashback, which is really traumatic and, and like really like just brings you back to the situation and just makes your heart rate go up, makes everything go up, makes you shake, makes you, it's just terrible. But then you smoke cannabis and you're just like, what, 
what was I thinking about? Like, not that you forget, but that like, you just feel like it's not a good use of your time. It, you just have that realization. So and... I, I hear that it can uh, help to alleviate PTSD symptoms when they're occurring. Do you think it also helps stop them from occurring? Yeah, because uh, I know like there was some times when like, for example, I had bronchitis uh, one winter and uh, since I had the discrimination, I was diagnosed with PTSD, I could not smoke cannabis. And for that time, um, I was having more flashbacks and more memories and more traumatic just episodes. I was really missing the, the cannabis relief. Mm. So what about uh, the gummies and the, uh, the drops, the oil version of cannabis? Um, well, my preferred method, I know it's bad, but it's smoking because that's what I started with. I'm trying to go strictly to vaping um, cannabis because that is more healthy than smoking. Uh, the problem for me with edibles, and because I am a medical patient, I get my cannabis medically from an LP. An LP stands for a licensed producer, and they are the ones that package the cannabis, grow the cannabis, they're just in charge of it. Where uh, recreational people get to go to the store and get to buy from there, we order off a website or off the phone and it gets delivered to our door, which is good for some people, but not for others living in rural areas because it takes a while for the delivery to get there. And when those people need their relief, they need it now, not when the delivery can come. An extra challenge for the people who live in rural areas. Uh, okay, so we unpacked the migraines, we unpacked how it's helped with mental health, and you talked about the PTSD and anxiety and depression. What other symptoms has it helped? Ever since I got on a stable amount, like from the, I went from the doctor prescribing me month to month to a doctor that prescribe me the amount I needed uh, in the quantity I needed. From that period onward, I stopped having seizures or my seizures were controlled. Um, I have epileptic tendencies that came along with my acquired brain injury and I was seizuring not on a constant basis, but at least once a week and they were always while I was sleeping, which is really dangerous because like it's in the middle of the night and you don't know if you'll wake up. Also, what helped me move out on my own because because of that, I needed to stay in a place where other people were so that they could hear if I banged on the floor or if I hit against the wall or just anything. Like for instance, one time I got up in the middle of the night, had to go pee. You know, you're groggy, you're like, oh, whatever. You go to the bathroom. Last thing I knew, I was sitting there going to the washroom. And then I wake up, paramedics all around me, my parents, apparently I hit the floor, crashed into the tub. I had a bruise all down the side of my face, like purple, purple, Barney purple. 
like it was just really dangerous and I needed people there to monitor me in case I had those falls and those big grand mal seizures. And uh, now that it's controlled, I got to move out on my own because I don't have to worry about that, which I am extremely, extremely grateful for. Wow, so you could even say cannabis has given you freedom. Yeah, it really changed my life. It helped me graduate high school. It helped me move out on my own. It helped me help other people, which I really enjoy. Wow, okay, so let's unpack uh, some of those. So just backing up a wee bit to the seizures. So from what I understand, seizures are when the uh, electrical currents in our brain get messed up and, and that's what causes a seizure. So it sounds like cannabis somehow normalizes the electrical brain activity that we have. Yeah, like I'm not a doctor or scientist, so I don't want to make any claims, but um, I, I'm pretty sure that's, that sounds correct because I haven't had a seizure since and I know others who have, I only have epileptic tendencies. People who have full-on epilepsy, who have multiple seizures a day, they still seizure from time to time, and they still they still have epileptic symptoms, but they're more controlled, and they're easier to handle, is what I've heard from others. Right, so they have a better quality of life, too. So you managed to finish high school because of cannabis. And for some people, that's going to sound like, what? Because doesn't cannabis make people stupider? Doesn't it impact your uh, short-term memory? So how did you manage to graduate from high school while also needing cannabis to be able to do that? First of all, uh, I have multiple compounded acquired brain injuries. So my working memory was gone way before I used cannabis, way before. Yeah, because I had to stay home in the dark bedridden, like get my parents to like feed me, even like things like, like clip my toenails. It was like I was in a hospital and they were my full on caretakers, which I am so, so grateful for them. But I would rather finish high school. I was literally on my last year of high school when it really hit. And I'm just like, I want to graduate. I want to graduate with my classmates. And I couldn't. And that was really heartbreaking for me. But when we finally, um, after the surgery, after the opioids, when I finally got the doctors to believe that, hey, you know what, this works, and I got the prescription, I was allowed to smoke just off of school property. And I um, had to show my prescription to the principal and the teachers and all of that. But I was allowed to, uh, whenever I got a migraine, um, relieve myself and then come back and finish the work, finish the job. And I successfully graduated. And I couldn't be more grateful because without cannabis, I would not have graduated. I would not have had the, the strength to be able to stay at school. 
Yeah, that you've really painted a really starkly contrasting picture of how you were bed bound, needing, you know, 24-7 care, dark room, silence, and then you're back in school uh, because of cannabis. That's a huge transformation. Yeah, and that's why I, like, I don't push it. People are like, oh, like I have like arthritis. Oh, I have back pain. Like no medicine works. No medicine helps me. And I'm just like, you should try cannabis because it really helps me. Uh, I'm not trying to peer pressure you. I'm not trying to force anything upon you, but it helped me. And I feel like it can help you too. As legalization came, it became more acceptable in society to smoke. So um, more people, especially um, seniors, were more acceptable to smoking. They felt like it was okay now. So they started smoking. They're like, oh, I feel the medical benefits too. So that actually also helped. But with legalization came a lot of bad things for the medical side. Taxation, which is really, really... I, I want to say embarrassing for Canada because cannabis is the only drug in Canada that's taxed. And when I was on opioids, there was no tax and it was completely covered by provincial programs. I am on Ontario Disability Support Program, ODSP, and that, that comes with a drug benefit. It doesn't cover all drugs but it covers the basic ones, including opioids. So I got those covered and they had no taxes on them. Whereas medical cannabis, it's not seen as a prescription because it's not in the pharmacy. So the government goes off the technicality like, oh, it's not a prescription, so we don't have to cover it. Because of that, uh, it's out of pocket and it's also taxed. So there's sales tax, which was always on it. But when legalization came, there was an excise tax added to it, a dollar per gram, which is outrageous because people who use medical cannabis are generally disabled and on disability programs. On ODSP, I earn $1,169 a month. That's for my rent. That's for my bills. That's for my medical cannabis. That's for my therapy. That's for everything. I just can't afford my full prescription with a tax attached to it or even without tax at all because paying for it out of pocket is really, really crushing to my finances. It costs my full prescription, if I were to fill it, costs 420 something dollars a month, which I know is like kind of funny, like 420, but um, <laughs> yeah. But like um, before when I was at a different licensed producer, that didn't give me compassionate pricing, which some LPs, licensed producers do, to people who do not earn a certain amount of money in income, they give you compassionate pricing, which is a certain percent off your total. 
I was originally at an LP that did not have compassionate pricing. So my full prescription costs over $800. And when you earn $1,169 a month for all your costs, you can't buy that. You can't pay that. It's really crushing because I made a commitment to myself that I will never, never use opioids again. They work for some people. I am not saying they don't work. They work for some people and they are very important to those people. And they are very important in the medical system. Just not for me. <laughs> um, well, it, it sounds like there's two issues. The one issue, yeah, the uh, extra taxes on a medication the f and the fact that we have to pay out of pocket for this medication. And then the other thing is the trying to survive on 1169 in disability support monthly really is just starvation. Yeah, it is starvation wages. And there was just an article in the Toronto Star, there was just uh, research done in 2020 groceries are going to go up by over $600 per family. And we don't have that money. We don't have the money to survive now. Even before the pandemic, we were struggling to survive. We were budgeting like no one's ever budgeted in the sense that we were doing clearance, coupons. We were flyers, price matching. We were going to the rack in the back of the grocery store with the bruised bananas on it. We were like scrounging and scavenging, going to Goodwill and like Value Village trying to get like secondhand items. Like we were budgeting hard and it was still not enough. We still needed the food bank. We still needed these other services. For example, me, I need financial help along with it. So my family does help me out, but some people are not as privileged as I am. Some people do not have family. To some people, the 1,169 is all they have. And I just remembered again, those people that don't have the family, those people that don't have the other resources that they can go, hey, mom and dad, I can't afford my cannabis this month. Could you give me like maybe a hundred dollars so I can get just like half my prescription? They go, I cannot afford my cannabis. I have to go back on opioids. So some people, I made the commitment to myself that I'm not going to go back on opioids. And some people are not as lucky as I am and can't say that and have to go, you know what? Cannabis is a safer version. Cannabis helps me more than anything else, but I can't afford the safer version. So I have to go back to this potentially lethal drug that didn't help me as much as cannabis did. Yeah, we should be really clear here that our provincial premier, because we're both in Ontario, so our provincial premier, Doug Ford, uh, really has no concerns about people living with disabilities. And uh, we've seen since the pandemic, as you said, the cost of groceries have risen at the same time that the purchasing value of our dollar has also decreased. So while people that were working but lost some of their 
work hours because of the pandemic and the closures, they were given $2,000 a month to fill in for what they did not earn. There was no increase at all for people living with disabilities. So yeah, it's continued in the starvation bracket. I actually memorized the stats for this. In the seven months of CERB, Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, for people who lost their jobs, they got $2,000 a month. So that's $14,000 for seven months. One year on Ontario Disability Support Program, getting the max for a single adult, 1,169. That's the max for a single adult living on their own. One year of that, is 14,080 something. So one year of being disabled in Ontario equals seven months of being able to work, but losing your job. And we are both in the same circumstances as in we both are unable to work right now. But since they are not disabled, they, or, some people who are disabled got it, but again, our premier took half of it as a clawback. So you're getting $2,000 a month. You don't need the ODSP payment then, which is ridiculous because those people had ODSP and worked on top of it. Just so we understand and so we're clear, only less than 8% of ODSP re recipients are able to work and work. So only a slim few got CERB, but Doug Ford clawed it back anyway, because that's just the type of man he is. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think we'd be speaking unfactually to say that he does not care about people with disabilities and that's uh, reflected in his actions or inaction. Yeah, like uh, there was just an article uh, that was published yesterday in the Toronto Star that I um, shared on Twitter this morning. And it was talking about how he um, making plans to make it harder for people on ODSP or applying for ODSP and OW Ontario Works, which is for people who are applying to ODSP but haven't received an answer yet or are not disabled but are in financial need single moms families that have like hardship just to help them out they often for both odsp and ow they often reject people right off the bat so they have to appeal but the article said that doug ford is making plans to make it harder for people to appeal the decision so when they get right off the bat, nope, sorry, you're not disabled enough for ODSP. Nope, sorry, you're not acceptable enough to get OW. They will not be able to appeal it. They will not be able to fight back and go, hey, you know what? Yes, I am disabled. You know what? My doctor, he signed the form saying I'm disabled. He described my disability. Like what more do you need? They won't have a chance to fight for themselves. They won't have a chance to self-advocate. They won't have a chance for someone else to advocate for them. That's just so unfair. And the fact that he's doing that in the highest part of the pandemic is just unbelievable, unfathomable. 
I'm looking at BC and they are giving disability recipients $300 until December, um, just to top up automatically on their uh, disability checks. And that helped some of those people bear through the pandemic. The only help that was offered for ODSP was a $100 per month max um, payment. You had to request it. It was means tested, which means they could say no. You had to describe to them why you needed it, exactly what you needed it for. You had to call and say, I need it for PPE. Personal protective equipment from COVID. Yeah. Um, I need it for PPE. I need it for cleaning supplies. I need it for delivery costs because I can't go to the store because I'm immunocompromised. I need it for more treatment because my surgery has been postponed because of COVID. I need it for just all these reasons. After pleading your case, a person gets to decide whether you are worthy enough for a measly $100. And some people, they accepted, but only gave less than $100. Some people got $50. I don't know how they decide that. I don't know what scale it is. And it's just, again, unfathomable to me. But it gets worse. They didn't advertise it properly. Many people didn't even know it was offered and didn't know to ask for it. It was only from April to July, and then Ford canceled it. And after it got canceled, the advocacy, the disability advocates were, and the community was in like kind of like an uproar, like, hey, why did you delete this when we need it? And other people were like, hey, that was offered? I didn't know that. The, the number of people that did that was unfathomable. And there was one time I was talking to uh, just a person working at ODSP and they said themselves, it kills us to tell people that, no, like we can't give you the money because Doug Ford has set out certain regulations on when to give the money and when not to. And the fact that, again, comparing it to BC, they gave it automatically. Everyone on disability will have hardship right now. Everyone on disability should get $300 a month until December. Ontario, it was April, May, June, July. Four payments, means tested. They could have said no, and we had to plead our case. And again, serve. CERB for people who were able to work, they didn't have to plead their case at all. They just had to apply. They didn't have to say, I need it for this. I need it for that. The, the difference there, though, is the CERB money was coming from the federal government, whereas ODSP is coming from the provincial government, where Ford is the problem. Again, to compare like the federal, you know the CERB. Well, we 
have been pleading to the federal government like hey you know what our premiers have not been helping us we need help the minister of disability inclusion carla quethro um she's just like okay let's let's do something um but her and trudeau were just stalling back and forth back and forth it was the ndp that had to step up and be like okay disabled people need help they are the last ones to, to be helped and you haven't helped them yet they are one of the most vulnerable they need help now we need to help them now the liberals were doing the dance around like oh like we can't help people that are on provincial we can only help people on federal programs so those on um, disability pensions, CPPD, which is Canadian Pension Plan Disability, we can help them and we can help people who have the disability tax credit, which is through the Canadian Revenue Agency, the CRA. So we can do federal stuff, but we can't do anyone else. Insulting. It's uh, both our provincial and our federal governments have totally failed people with disabilities. I just want to take a second to give a heads up to all of the people that may be experiencing long COVID now or may in the future experience long COVID because there's a couple of things about that. We have not heard any of our health ministers, provincial or the federal one, and we've not heard our provincial premier publicly acknowledge long COVID patients or warn people that long COVID is a thing and that 10 to 30% of people who get COVID don't seem to be recovering. They seem to be permanently sick. Now, some of those people, if they don't have private insurance, they're going to have to apply for provincial disability insurance coverage. Now, if the premier and the health leaders are not publicly acknowledging long COVID, then the healthcare system isn't going to acknowledge it. So you're not going to be able to easily get disability because you don't have a publicly acknowledged disease. It's an invisible disease. So those long COVID folks are in for a world of reality. And uh, I'm hoping, because there'll be so many of them coming into the system all at once, that that'll put immense pressure on our disability support program, both provincially and federally. There is a motion, a motion 46, and it is for uh, GLBI, which is Guaranteed Livable Basic Income. And that's for the only qualifications to get this benefit is to be under a certain income level. Uh, and the income level is, again, livable. It's above poverty. It's enough that you can not only exist, but thrive. A guarantee that the disability programs we have now won't be touched. And that's important because even though the disability programs, there's a million and one problems with them. If those programs get taken down, even though we'll have extra direct cash coming in, we'll have to pay that money on the coverage that ODSP used to do, on the medications, the treatments, 
even though they only cover a slight few, that's still really important. And those still need to be there, even with a basic income coming in. And that's what my personal beef is with a UBI, is that there's no guarantee that they won't go, okay, now that we're giving everyone rich or poor extra money, we don't need these extra programs. We don't need these extra services because everyone's good. But the truth is they won't be good. And my other fear with UBI is if they give money to everyone, rich or poor, it won't be a livable amount. It will just be a top up to people's salaries. It will be, and that will be that amount for everyone even people who are in deep poverty. I just think that it's just a matter of equality versus equity. And that's really important. So Sarah, we've really yeah. unpacked uh, uh, some of the institutional embedded problems with uh, this disability support program, as well as the access to medical marijuana. And so it, often it seems like there's people that are, have disabilities have to choose between eating and medication. And those really seem like horrible, horrible choices. Yeah, I hear from a lot of people that have um, starved themselves in the pandemic, not by choice, but by instance some people have kids and the money they get they use to feed their kids they don't feed themselves and it's heartbreaking to hear yeah i concur so now we've seen the medical system slowly recognize that cannabis is actually a medicinal herb or a treatment and so we're sort of seeing that yet, as, as you very eloquently pointed out, it's not covered under the drug formulary, so you have to pay out of pocket for that. So you've become sort of a, a cannabis advocate. What are you hoping for? Where are you moving in that direction? First of all, I've always been a proponent for the exemption of tax because, again, it's the only uh, doctor authorized medication that's taxed. And I think that people who need it the most can't afford a tax. So that, that's just, what one of the elements you're fighting against and for. So Sarah, if people wanted to find you on social media, how would they do that? My Twitter is at uh, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H underscore Calero, C-O-L-E-R-O. -E yeah, that's what I mainly use for my advocacy work. I'm planning on starting a blog in 2021. I'm just fixing up a few things, but uh, yeah, that's where I'll be until then. Okay, so people can follow you on Twitter and when your blog launches, they can follow you there as well. Yeah. Well, thanks, Sarah, for sharing not only your experiences, but for the advocacy and awareness work that you're doing. It, it is muchly needed. Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you for your podcast and for reaching out to other people and for getting these uh, messages out and experiences out because it, they really need to be heard. And you are a, a big proponent in that. So. Thank you so much. Well, a big thanks to Sarah for sharing not only her experiences with the medical system, but for her advocacy work in trying to bring equity to access to medicinal 
in access to medicinal cannabis. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Just go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Sarah Calero, and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Sarah's experiences with the healthcare system.